0: So, today we're going to turn our attention to the rest of this chapter. I hope and and pray that you are prepared to receive the word of the Lord today. I hope that you come expecting to hear God speak through His word. I pray that you will also bear with me as I navigate through 40 verses this morning. Now, what makes this narrative easier to navigate through is the style in which it is written. It is written in a narrative type uh, form it is written to where Luke the evangelist he is retelling what is happening in the kingdom of God through the spreading of the gospel as he is using the early church as he is using the apostles as he is using his disciples if you recall we began the book of Acts with this description of the book of Acts, if you recall at the very beginning, if you were to thumb back through your notes, you will recall that I asked you to keep in mind that Acts is descriptive rather than prescriptive. It is describing what the early church is doing rather than prescribing or commanded the early church uh, to do a certain thing. And even though there are theological examples for you and I to follow in Acts, it is showing and demonstrating how the Lord is growing His church, as you guessed it, through the Acts of the Apostles. And Last time we were together in chapter 13, we got a visual of God's diverse or His assorted kingdom. Luke begins to give this catalog of people from Jerusalem, from every walk of life. We have Barnabas, we have Simeon, we have Lucius, we have Manion, and of course, we see Barnabas and Saul listed there as well. These men had gathered around Barnabas and Saul and prayed over them and sent them out. And Paul and Barnabas set sail and they went towards Cyprus. The first place that they go as they enter into Cyprus, they enter into this island. The first place that they go is to the synagogue. And the reason that they do this is to reason with their fellow brothers and sisters, those, their fellow brothers and and, yes, sisters in the synagogue. They're Jewish They're Jewish people. And they go into the synagogue, and Paul makes this an everyday, and everything stops. So, like, if he goes into a new place, he goes to the synagogue to reason with his brothers and sisters on who Jesus is. They cover the whole island of Paphos, as indicated in verse 6 of chapter 13, that said they've gone through the whole island of Paphos, and they came upon a certain magician a false prophet by the name of Bar Jesus Paul and Barnabas had zeal they had enthusiasm for the gospel of Jesus they went out of their way to cover the whole island they took the command of Jesus to go and make disciples they took it seriously and the gospel is that important the gospel is that is that vital they encountered a false prophet by the name of Alimus or by Jesus and Paul being moved by the Holy Spirit, not by the flesh, but by His Holy Spirit, he rebuked this false prophet. The proconsul believed in the word of the Lord, about Jesus Christ. And at the end of the last few verses that we were together, the Bible tells us that he was astonished at the reading of the word. He was astonished at the word of, of the Lord. And by the time that we end these first 12 verses, Luke the evangelist, who wrote the book of Acts, he has demonstrated how the Lord had added a diverse assortment of people to the kingdom of God. You have people from every walk of life. You have people from every socio-economical background. Now, without broadly broadcasting or loudly broadcasting, Luke is implying that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are called to be on mission, and you are called to serve Him. By the time that we end with this discourse in these first few verses, and towards the end of verse 52, we will find that not only do we have rich folks, but we have poor folks, we have educated, and we have those who might consider to be uneducated. Thus, Luke is implying, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are called to his mission, you are called to serve him. And so today we're going to jump into the remainder of chapter 13 with a sermon that I've entitled, Paul and Barnabas Take a Seat. Paul and Barnabas take a seat. In fact, you'll see that they take a seat in order to stand for the gospel. So speaking of standing, I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand together as we read the word of the Lord. And I'm going to be reading from verse 13 through 16. And let me say something about standing for the reading of the word. Even if we're not reading all 40 verses today, we stand, even if we're reading a portion of scripture, because we are saying that the centerpiece of worship is Jesus. The centerpiece of worship is the preached Word of God that elevates Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus. The centerpiece of worship is not communion. It is not baptism. It is not foot washing. It isn't even the music. The centerpiece of worship is when we open up the Word of God that elevates to us the person of Jesus. Now, so let's read verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch to Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Let me say that again. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Father, we ask you that you would bless this reading. Father, if you have breathed it out, Lord, I pray that you would give us what you would have us to hear. And may we hide these words in our heart, Lord. Father, may we hear what you have to say today through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, for what I just read in these first few verses, it sets the context for the hearing of the word today. Now, here is a map where Paul and Barnabas had set sail to. You'll see I've marked it one, two, and three. They have ministered on this whole island. They have come to Paphos and Perga, and they're going to make their way up towards inland. And we'll find by the time we get through with these last few verses, they will find themselves almost exiled or kicked out to Iconium, where you we will find ourselves at the end of our verses of, of our verses today. And once they set sail, and I like to think of these as almost looking like little creeks, if they find themselves setting sail and they find themselves inland, the first place that they will go will be towards the synagogue. And the reason that they will find themselves in the synagogue is to meet with their Jewish brothers over the truth of Jesus as Messiah. And you will notice that Paul is now mentioned first, and Barnabas is secondary, giving us an indication that now Paul has taken the lead, and Barnabas has taken kind of the assistant to the Apostle Paul in this leg of his missionary journeys. The roles have reversed. You'll also notice that John Mark is mentioned as leaving and going back to Jerusalem. And this may be why Paul has issue with John Mark later as mentioned in chapter 15, verse 38. Maybe Paul saw John Mark as a deserter, maybe abandoning them. Regardless, Paul and Barnabas head to the synagogue to persuade the Jews of the person of Jesus. They knew their way of life, They knew that they were meeting to worship. They knew the importance of the synagogue. They knew the importance of the Sabbath day. Not only is this going to be a day of rest, but this is also a day of reflection and of worship. And of course, to sit down, as it says, is very indicative of teaching or preparing to teach, much like a rabbi would do to take a seat. In fact, for those who might be um, language nerds, those who who might... like to study the language, maybe even the Greek language, to take a seat in the Greek is the what's called the ingressive aorist active indicative. Just another way of saying that they took a seat as visiting Jews. They took a seat as rabbis. And this becomes reflective in verse 15 as the leaders in the synagogue asked Paul and Barnabas and said, if you have any word of encouragement, say it. So they took a seat to teach. It was an open invitation to teach. And the tone that we find the Apostle Paul is almost to say, I thought that you would never ask. And for Paul, it was low-hanging fruit. Paul stands up. He motions with his hands. And he told them how to have their best life now. He stood up and told them how much God loves them and that they can do any old thing that they want to do. He stood up and he told them a bunch of cool stories and relevant stories and cool jokes. No. He proceeded to elaborate from the Word of God. That is why I am bringing before you these 40 verses today because Paul uses biblical history. Paul walks through Scripture to demonstrate that Jesus he is long-suffering. He is salvation. He is Messiah. So he proceeds to elaborate from the Word of God and the rich history and the expectancy that they had in Messiah and how they missed Messiah. So Paul is going to work through the story of Scripture. In short, the Apostle Paul is going to keep the main thing, the gospel, the main thing. So let's see how he does that. First, Paul begins to reflect upon the character and nature of God. He does so by demonstrating that the Lord is long-suffering. Paul begins to go through salvation history with these leaders. He begins with what they already know, that is, their history. He begins to go through salvation history. He begins to go through the Torah. He begins with how the Lord brought them out of bondage under the hand of God of egypt under the thumb of egypt he demonstrate how god brought them out and that that this is a constant reminder of god's mighty hand in fact it will use this terminology with an uplifted hand he brought them out and we find this terminology used in deuteronomy chapter 4 i'll have these verses here for you deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 37 deuteronomy 7 verse 6 through 8 And then Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. These are uh, places where it uses this terminology with an uplifted arm. He brought them out of Egypt. It is a constant reminder, and the Lord is constantly reminding His people of how He acted on their behalf for His ultimate glory. The whole Torah, if you remember, I preached through Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. The whole Torah the instruments in the tabernacle the instruments of worship the covering of gold and the measurements of the tabernacle and all of the instruments used in the in this traveling tabernacle was a redirecting of worship and how do we worship god how do you worship god we worship god by rightly reflecting on his character We worship by rightly reflecting on His nature. By rightly reflecting on the work of Jesus Christ. Rightful worship means pushing self out of the way. So we come here this morning, and maybe we didn't like the songs because our preference drives us to another place, and that's okay. There are songs sometimes that we that we sing that I am not exactly overexcited for, but we do, so we sing them anyway because they rightly reflect. And so when we come into God's house, to rightly reflect means we push self out of the way, we push preference out of the way, and we elevate Jesus. When we walk out the door today, will it be said of us, well, can we say that we glorified Jesus? Was I satisfied because I, we glorified Jesus Christ today and that He was the centerpiece worship so rightful worship means reflecting on the character nature and work of God and pushing self out of the way God said this in verse 17 the God of this people Israel chose fathers and made people great during their time and their stay in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm he led them out of Egypt look at verse 18 and for about 40 years what does that say He put up with them in the wilderness. If there ever was any doubt of God's long-suffering nature, just reminisce on the children of Israel's rebellion and wandering in the wilderness. If there ever is any doubt of God's long-suffering, think about where God has brought you from. Where God has brought you from. See, humanity's history is full of rebellion. It's full of sin. It's full of continuous complaining. And all of these quote-unquote traits that are demonstrated in the wilderness wandering, but God put up with them. I am glad that He is long-suffering. And may I say this as a side note, there might be some here today that God, the Lord is putting up with you because He's giving you opportunity to repent. He's given you opportunity to repent and to serve Him. That's God's long-suffering. They complained about the food. They complained about the water. They complained about the weather. They complained about the leadership. And if, if, if I did not know that this was set in Israel's history, I would think that Moses was writing about some churches today. Verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And here the nations are cataloged in the Bible. It is something that the Jewish people will call seven nations in their writings. This is the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Gergesites. If if you might find this in Jewish writings, they are listed as seven nations. So Paul is charting through biblical history he is charting his way using God's word and charting through biblical history. Then he says with the oppression in Egypt and the wilderness wanderings that all of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man, the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Now there are 13 judges altogether that the Lord had given to Israel beginning with Atheniel, or Atheniel all the way to Eli. There's 13 judges altogether. And because the people are never really satisfied and because human nature is never really satisfied with God's provision and because the human nature is always to be self-absorbed in itself, Israel wanted to be like the pagan nations and have a king instead of the judges. And we find this in 1 Kings chapter 6 in verse 1. This is a demonstration of the depravity of man that we are never really satisfied with what God has provided for us. There's something more that we always want. There's something more that we always need. If I can always, only just have that one more dollar, if we can have that one more thing in life, God, I would be, I would be happy. He's walking through biblical history. The Bible tells us in verse 22, he had removed king, this king, and he would raised up Saul to be the king. And he testified and he said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as promised. So Saul is walking through salvation history. He is demonstrating through the line of David, through this rich history, and through the line of David, there is one that will arise. Jesus, who is Israel's Savior. And Paul has worked his way through salvation history. He's worked his way through redemption history all the way to the person of Jesus. He has set up historical proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah and how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king. And all the while, God has been patient. He has been long-suffering in bringing about His purposes and the projecting of the good news. God has been long-suffering, and He has been patient. The Lord could have easily come down and split open the sky and said, Look, behold, here is my son Jesus. Believe Him or die and be forever, forever judged. He could have manifested Himself in some in-your-face, inescapable way. By the way, He did through the person of Jesus. But our good God chose the way of evangelism and discipleship to build His kingdom. Spreading and telling the good news. You and I going out as believers, sharing the gospel. And if we have to look back in salvation history, do so. He has chosen this perfect path of telling the good news and making disciples. And the two are interjoined. It would be safe to say this morning, if I were to ask you a question about the long-suffering that the Lord has had, I would ask you such a question, has God been long-suffering with you? And you would say, absolutely, He has been gracious, He has been merciful for me, He has been been long-suffering. God has been long-suffering with this church. God has been long-suffering with the church in America today. It is amazing that some churches are still standing and are not a pile of smoldering ash by some of the horror stories that I hear coming from their walls. Now, if there was ever a testimony of God's long-suffering, look at the landscape of Christendom today and churches in America. So, church, I will say to you, you best thank God for His patience, His grace, His mercy, and His long-suffering. God has been long-suffering with you and I. And here Paul is laying out this truth. He's leading to the culmination of the long-suffering in the person and work of Jesus. If you were to open up a dictionary and you were to look up the word long-suffering, I would imagine that Jesus would be the picture you would see. He is the culmination of this long-suffering. And if you want to appreciate God's long-suffering, but look back in your life, See where God has brought you from. If you want to see God's long-suffering, look at His relationship with Israel, as Paul did. They had walked through the wilderness. God had performed miracle after miracle. He fed them from heaven. He protected them. He guided them in the night and in the day. He delivered them out of captivity. And we find in salvation history, and biblical history, that they turned their back on Him over and again. But there, through it all, there was something bigger than their rebellion. Something bigger than their rebellion and sin. And the Lord was going to bring about His purposes in spite of their rebellion. The plan was to bring into existence Messiah or Savior. So long-suffering is the description that Paul certainly would use as he is engaging the leaders in the synagogue Long-suffering is a combination of two Hebrew words, long or slow, and the second, nostril, nose, or face. Long-suffering does not refer to a long nose. It doesn't refer to God having a long nose, but the anger is seen and expressed on the face as snorting or wheezing or a snarled nose. God has an angry look upon His face if we were to catalog categorize this in the hebrew language he would be angry his facial expression would be he has snarled at sin because our sin is such a horrible offense to a holy and a righteous and a perfect god that his justice it cries out for its judgment but then again god's love longs to forgive us his grace it was is what makes it possible for him to forgive us even when we don't deserve His grace, which is never. We never deserve God's grace. We never deserve His mercy. We will never deserve His longsuffering. His mercy draws us to reflect on His compassion and to think of the consequences and the grief that our sin has caused a righteous and holy God, what our sin has caused And then his long-suffering is the postponing. Postponing the judgment that we deserve right here and now. Giving opportunity. God's long-suffering is giving opportunity to repent and trust in his grace through his son Jesus. Praise God for God's long-suffering. And this is what Paul is getting at in his teaching. Persuading his brothers and sisters that Jesus is the response to their sin. He's the ultimate demonstration of God's long-suffering. He brings them up to speed on salvation history and plants himself right there, showing the Lord Jesus as the culmination. And then he drops in John the baptizer as this ultimate call for repentance. Yes, there's Jesus. Yes, there's the truth of the cross. Yes, there's the truth of the resurrection. But there must be repentance. And there is always a call for repentance. There's a call for repentance when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus as they repent and as they are regenerated, as they are saved, and then there is a call to repentance for the believer as we are being sanctified in this life. And because we are not perfect, and because heaven has not been realized, we're still here. Repentance is a reoccurring reality for the follower of Jesus. Now, before his coming, it says of John that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Mark tells us that all of Jerusalem came. This hyperbolic speech, just another way of saying there was a whole lot of people came and responded to the preaching of John the baptizer. And at the finishing of his course, what John was sent to do as a precursor For the Messiah, he says, well, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. He is not Messiah. He is not the spotless lamb. But no, behold, after me one is coming whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Again, Paul is working through the body of Scripture. He's working through God's word. He's recollecting on on the evangelist Matthew who wrote these very words in chapter 3 and verse 11. So here's where Paul's heart is revealed. He is persuading his brothers. This is Messiah. Repent. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham. We are on the same page. We're in the same family. And those amongst you who fear God, we know you fear God. You open up the word and you read God. If you fear God, you'll listen to His word and you will weigh His word. To us has been sent the message of the salvation, the apostles and those who have been given this great commission. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor they understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they are fulfilled by condemning him. The condemnation of Jesus, them condemning him and putting him on the cross, and beating him and killing him, is a fulfillment of, of the word of God. They read about it, and they glossed it over, and they did not see it. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have executed. And when they had carried out all the writings of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb, a tomb of a rich man. He was numbered amongst the transgressors. By his stripes we are healed. Paul is reflecting on Isaiah 53 the suffering servant. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. If you were to survey and read the book of Corinthians, you will find that there was 500 people who witnessed Jesus after the resurrection. And then there are other witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Verse 32. And we, as a witness, as a a person who is testifying, as an evangelist, as apostles, we bring you the good news. What is the good news? That what God promised to the fathers, which he just read, this has been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. So Isaiah 53, now he's found himself in the psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He even says, this is the second psalm, around verse 7. Of course, they wouldn't know what verse 7 is, but you scroll down a little bit, you will find where it says, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And as, far, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has been truly resurrected, never to taste death, defeating death, hell, sin, and the grave, he has spoken in this way. Again, Isaiah 55 and verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Charting on yet again, the Apostle Paul using Psalms. Therefore he said in another Psalm that you will not let your Holy One, Jesus, see corruption, Psalm 16 and verse 10. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption. David would not be resurrected in this fashion in which Jesus did. He tasted death. There will be a grand resurrection, but it is not now. But he, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. So here's where Paul begins to get really preachy, if you want to use that terminology. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. He's preaching the gospel. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You spent your life articulating the law of Moses, you found yourself in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, keeping God's commandments, which could never, ever truly save you. They were only a blueprint. They were only an x-ray. They only showed you that you were wrong and that you could not keep the commands of God no matter how hard you tried. You needed a Savior. Beware. Least what is said in the prophets would come to pass. So Paul directs their attention to the book of the 12, to the 12 minor prophets, the book of Habakkuk. And he says, look, you scoffers, be astonished and, and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe even if one tells Tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. They heard the word of the Lord and they begged that they might come back. Saul has walked through the Old Testament, he's walked through their history, and then he makes the claim that Jesus is Messiah and repentance of sin is necessary through Jesus, through the work of Christ. See, he didn't have to chart up some relevant program or some self-help garbage. He kept the main thing, the main thing, and that is that Jesus is salvation. I saw a sermon this past week. I don't know if it was preached this past week or if you would call it a sermon even. The, the pastor or preacher of that particular church, he was using a passage, I think, from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and behind him he had some, some screens, much like we have here, but... They were charted across the back of the stage, and his parable, quote unquote, was the Adams family. So his whole sermon was revolved around each character in the Adams family, and occasionally he would read a passage of scripture. He spent 90% of his time telling you about who the Adams family was and how to know who they are and how you can relate to them, and 10% exegeting from God's word. We don't need some relevant program. We don't need to tie in the movies to our sermons. We don't need to tie in current events to our sermons. We need to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is that Jesus is salvation. And this should be a lesson to every single one of us. Keep the gospel the main thing. That's what Paul did. Maybe the issue for some of us today is that we cannot articulate the gospel. We haven't perfected the story of telling the gospel to others. And friends, if there is ever anything, one thing pertaining to our faith that we must perfect, and it is telling of the good news. Keep the gospel the main thrust of all that we do as followers of Jesus. The church today, I believe, is so enamored with trying to attract people by worldly means Many churches have become aficionados of building clubhouses instead of houses of worship. I don't care about being a part of a club. What I do care about is being part of the kingdom of God and growing as saints of the Lord. Let's keep what is the most important at the center of worship. Let's make Jesus' final word to commission our first work. Robert Gallaty has written a book entitled Rediscovering Discipleship, Making Jesus' Final Words Our First Work. And in this particular book, Gallaty retells the story of a 10-year-old uh, boy, a, a Judo student, 10 years old. And um, let's call him Joe, for our sake. Let's call him Joe. Joe really loved Judo. I mean, he, 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 had, he loved Getting to getting getting to compete and and getting on the mat and and he become a good a disciple of of judo. He become really good at it, almost master's level. At ten years old, judo uh, Joe had learned some of the moves and he could all hold his own on the mat. And needless to say, he he loved judo. Sadly, Joe was in a really bad car accident. And in this car accident, it crushed his, his left arm. And the, his arm was so badly damaged that the doctors had to amputate it. He had lost his left arm. As you can imagine, this devastated Joe as it would anybody. Losing an appendage, losing an arm or a leg. Or, not only had the, the, the wreck left him forever handicapped, but how could he ever compete in judo again he was bound and determined to try bound and determined to compete even maybe he might not win a championship but he was going to try and he already he already knew some moves he already could compete at 10 years old some masters level even at 10 years old even if he didn't have a even if he didn't have a a left arm he could still try and in his mind he was determined and his teacher worked and worked with him over and again But it still wasn't enough for Joe. But why? Well, Joe's teacher only showed him one move. He had learned many moves before the accident, and he he knew those pretty well, and he could practice those. But any new moves to pull in his catalog, his teacher only was going to show and work with him with one move. Over and again, Joe's teacher would only work with him with this one move, but Joe begged and begged to learn and and practice more, but the teacher insisted that Joe master this one particular move, and this move only. The time had come for his first competition since the car wreck that he was in, and needless to say, he was a ball of nerves. To everyone's surprise, Joe did really well. He did really well. He made it to the finals. It came down to Joe and the previous state champion. And the match wasn't what you would expect. I mean, there was no training montage. There was no tit-for-tat like you see on The Karate Kid or something like that. It didn't take long for Joe at all to win the whole thing. It was over pretty quick. All of the training paid off, but how did Joe win the competition with just honing in on one move and making it the main thing. The way that Joe won was simple. Not in execution, not simple in execution, but understanding how Joe actually won. First, Joe's teacher taught him the toughest move to learn. The toughest move to learn in all of Judo, and Joe mastered it. Secondly, The only way to counter this move was the opponent had to grab the left arm, which Joe no longer had. Genius and yet simple. They kept it simple and it paid off. Maybe for you and I, it is that simple. Keep the main thing, the main thing, and perfect it. The gospel is perfect enough. It doesn't need us cluttering the way. It doesn't need us muddying the water. It doesn't need our super spiritual sounding stories. It just needs to be simple. Let's chart together as we close out. Verse 43, they met together in the synagogue and they broke up. And many of the Jews and the converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who as they spoke with them, they urged them to continue in the grace. God's word was at work. The preaching of God's word was at work. The next Sabbath had came. They'd asked him to come back. The whole city gathered to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the crowd, they become filled with jealousy. Sounds familiar. They began to contradict what Paul has spoke and began to revile him, raising up the people against him. But Paul of Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying... It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside, judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Again, Isaiah 49 and verse 6, Paul is teaching from God's word. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Sounds like there were some people who were elected. As many who was appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of God was spreading throughout the whole region. The Jews incited the devotees. The devout women and of high standing and the leading men of the city, they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they drove them out of the the district. The Bible says they shook the dust off their feet that was against them and went to Iconium. And we see here in this next slide, number three is where they ended up in Iconium. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas, they take a seat in the synagogue. They work through salvation history. They work through God's word. They work all the way through the history, leading up to the person of Jesus, that he was from the line of David, and then they move from the line of David that Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose again. They kept it. He kept it simple. He took a seat in the synagogue to take a stand for Jesus as Messiah. And history has demonstrated how long-suffering the Lord is and how merciful He has been to you and I and how long-suffering He has been. And there might be someone in here today who doesn't know the Lord and the, lo- and the Lord is long-suffering. I mean, you're here because of that. At any moment, the Lord could call you home and He would be justified in doing so. He is the pinnacle example of long-suffering in that He sent His Son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. And the example that Paul leaves is quite simple, and I'll leave it with you as well. Be willing to go out of your way for the people that you care for, your family, your friends, and others. He uses this persuasive language all through it. Brothers, men of Israel, sons of the family of Abraham. Be willing to move on the burden that you have for people. And if you don't have a burden for people and for the lost, pray that God will give you that burden for the lost. And then lastly, keep the gospel simple. Repent of your sins. Believe or trust in Christ as Lord, that He raised Him from the dead. Confess your sins. Confess Christ as Lord. Be born again. And then serve Him.